So today we continue our sermon series uh, in Ephesians. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And so while you're turning to Ephesians 2, um, let me just say, that there, there, I think most of you know this, if you've, if you've been a Christian for some time, you know this, that there are, there are some verses and some key passages, brief passages in the Bible that, that every Christian really ought to memorize and, and know by heart. You know what I mean? There, there are certain verses that are like that. They're brief, they're clear, useful gospel summaries. They're useful in, in our own hearts as we seek to shepherd our own hearts. They're useful as we seek to, to preach the gospel to ourselves. They're useful as we seek to minister to others, to, to disciple our children. They're useful as we seek to, to evangelize and to reach out to friends and neighbors. You have verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verses like John 14.6 where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or like Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, of course, this is not an exhaustive list. Okay, the list goes, goes on and on, but, but I hope that you, you get my point, that there are, there are key verses, brief passages, that really are crucial to us understanding the good news of the gospel of God's grace, understanding what it means to be a Christian, to live as a Christian. And our passage today, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, are such verses. We need to understand them. We need to know them. We need to know what they're saying and what they're not saying. In fact, our church's children have a, have a long list of verses that they're working hard to memorize, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 is actually on the list. And so, wh- whether you've been a Christian for decades, or whether this is your very first time setting foot in a Bible-believing church, then you really ought to understand and know, seek to understand, seek to know what we find here in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. And so, here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. Now, before I give you the outline for the sermon, we are going to have an outline with four points, but I, I, I want to begin just with making plain what these three verses are about, which is really what all of Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 are about, and that is salvation in Christ. I mean, look at the opening sentence of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Because you have been saved. That Paul's calling us to remember really what we've been covering the last two Sundays. I mean, think back to what we've learned, what we've gone over uh, multiple times. I mean, do you remember who we all once were 
before God saved us by his grace in Christ. You think back to Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul says that we were all spiritually dead. We were all spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Not, not merely spiritually sick. Not merely on our, on our spiritual deathbeds, but we were spiritually dead. Then he goes on to say, it's not just that we were dead, that we were also the walking dead, living as willing slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he says, therefore, we stood condemned before our holy and righteous God. In verse 3 he says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's calling us to remember, you know, what we have been saved from, that we were all spiritually dead, enslaved, condemned. That is what God saved us, those of us who are Christians, that is what God saved us from. But then we saw last week in Ephesians 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, what God has saved us to. And the contrast between what he saved us from and what he has saved us to, I mean, it's really, it's It's stunning. It's stunning. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins in verse 1, but God made us alive together with Christ in verse 5. That we were slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil in verses 2 and 3, but God liberated us and raised us up with Christ, and our home is now in heaven in verse 6. That we once stood condemned before a holy God in verse 3, but God has now seated us with Christ at God's right hand as his adopted children in loving fellowship with full assurance of eternal life in verse 6. I mean, it's stunning to think about what God has saved us from and what he has saved us to by his grace through faith. John Stott summarizes it this way, salvation is more than mere forgiveness. It is deliverance from the death, slavery, and wrath described in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, Indeed, it includes the totality of our new life in Christ, together with whom we have been made alive, exalted, and seated in the heavenly realm in Ephesians 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. And so now we come to our text, verses 8, 9, and 10. And we're going to look at these three verses under four headings. And as I give you these headings, Notice, okay, what these headings say about our salvation, but also you got to pay close attention to the prepositions. Okay, to the prepositions. So first, this salvation is by grace. It's by grace. And we also see this salvation, secondly, is through faith. And that this salvation is the gift of God, and that this salvation is for good works. That it is by grace, through faith, the gift of God, and for good works. And so let's look first at by grace. And and Paul has been talking about grace throughout Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And and so look look at verse 5 and verse 8. Paul repeats himself. Verse 5, he says, Even we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then back in verse 8, then in verse 8 he repeats himself. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That Paul wants us to, to, to understand this, to not miss it. He, he's trying to impress it upon our minds and our hearts. Now that word grace, that's a very churchy word, a very Bible word. We see it a lot, in a lot of places. But, but I fear that the word grace is, 
is a lot like the word football. And, and what I mean is, so you guys are laughing, okay, but there's actually a point here. What, what I mean is, it's not just that I always think about football, which I, which I do, but what I mean is that the word grace means different things to different people. We're all using the same word. We don't always mean the same thing. So, for example, you guys know that if you're, if you're in Australia, you start talking about football, they're going to think you're talking about rugby. Okay, or if you're hanging out with Marcelo, who's from Brazil, he's going to think you're talking about soccer. Whereas for the rest of us, when we hear football, we know that we think about the University of Georgia's football team, you know, <laughs> and how wonderful they were this past year, right? That's what we think about. But, but with, with kidding aside... Most church-going folks are familiar with the word grace, but we don't always mean the same thing, even though we're using the same word. Therefore, it's important for us to wrap our minds and our hearts around what Paul means, what the Bible means, whenever we see grace. Okay, so grace is not merely graciousness or kindness. See, whenever we speak of God's grace, we're not merely saying that God is kind. We're not merely saying that God is nice. We're not merely saying that God is gracious. Now, he is all of that, but God's grace is so much more, immeasurably more than that. That grace is God's free and undeserved favor, mercy, and love towards sinners like us. Now, John Calvin puts it pretty simply. He says, God declares that he owes us nothing, so salvation is not a reward or recompense but unmixed grace. It's this undeserved favor, mercy, and grace not mixed in with any reward, any recompense that God owes us. Or as David Martin Louis-Jones expands this a little bit more, he says, it is in spite of us that God forgives us. We are Christian not because we are good people. We're Christian because though we were bad people, God had mercy upon us and sent his son to die for us. We are saved entirely by the grace of God. There is no human contribution whatsoever. Let me say that again. The Bible is very clear about this. Paul is very clear about this over and over again throughout the book of Ephesians, and specifically throughout Ephesians chapter 2. There is no human contribution whatsoever. If you think there is, you're denying the central biblical doctrine. God's grace. We're saved by grace. And so so let, let me try to illustrate this by way of a story. This is a true story that, that took place back in the 1800s in one of the worst slums in London. And it involves a, a social worker, a man named Henry Morehouse. And one evening, uh, Henry was, was walking home, and, uh, and he noticed this little girl uh, stepping out of a shop, and she's carrying this big jug, this big pitcher. And she, she carries this jug, just a few steps, and then, and then and sadly, uh, she, she stumbles, she trips, the jug falls to the ground, and he realizes, okay, that's a milk jug because the jug shatters. I mean, it just shatters, the milk goes everywhere, running down the sidewalk into the gutter, and then you can imagine what this little girl does. She just falls on her knees, she begins to cry, she kind of gropes, you know, around a little bit at the milk and at the, at the shards of this, of this broken, shattered milk jug. She starts to cry. Morehouse goes to the little girl. He helps her back up on her feet. Uh, he tries to get her to stop crying. Of course, he can't. 
Um, he can't, and, uh, and, he, and, and she says to him, my mother will be so mad at me. You don't understand, my mother will be so mad at me. And, sh- and she's trying to, to put the pieces of the broken picture back together, okay? You, you remember there was a time when people used to try to fix things instead of just throwing them away? So she's trying to, she's trying to put things back together, but she can't. She gets close and it falls apart. So Morehouse, he said, well, let me try, let me try. And so he begins to do it. He gets it all back together except the handle, and then he tries to put the handle, and it falls back apart. And so it's very clear, this broken, shattered picture, this, this milk jug, it's, it's ruined. And so Morehouse then, he picks the girl up in his arms, he carries her to a new shop, and he buys her a new pitcher. And he takes her back to the shop that she came out of, and he pays to have the new pitcher refilled up to the brim with new milk. And then he asks her, who had stopped crying at this point, where she lived. And the little girl told him, and so he carried her to their house, and he set her down on the doorstep, and, and he carefully, gently <laughs> handed her the, the milk jar, and he, and he opened the door. And then he asked her one more time, One more question. Do you still think your mother will be mad at you? And the little girl looked up at him, and she had a big smile on her face. She said, oh, no, sir, because this is a much better picture than the one that I had before. See, that this, I mean, it's just an illustration, but this is grace. See, the little girl received grace from the man, that that she did not deserve his help. She had no means, no way of hiring him. She wouldn't be able to pay him. This is an illustration of God's grace towards sinners like us in salvation. See, the Bible teaches us that when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden, um, their righteousness, if you will, was broken and shattered beyond repair. And the result being that all of us were born into this world spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet we just keep trying to to put the the pieces of our broken, shattered righteousness back together again through all of our best efforts at being good, through our best efforts at religious involvement, through all of our best efforts at being kind and nice and unselfish and, and generous. However, even our best efforts are just like this little girl trying to gather back up her spilt milk and and piece back together this broken milk jug. It simply won't work. That we can't fix ourselves. And this is where the grace of God comes in. The God the Father sent Jesus the Son to take on flesh and to dwell among us. He lived the perfect sinless life, the life that we have all failed to live the life that we didn't live, the life that we couldn't live. He lived it for us. And he died the death on Calvary's cross, the atoning death, the sacrificial death in our place, on our behalf, to pay for our sins in full. And he rose from the grave on that first Easter morning. And Jesus, you see, did not do all of this to merely assist us. He didn't do all of this to merely reform us a little as if what we needed was merely a little help. No, Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again to raise us from our state of spiritual death and slavery and condemnation to newness of life together with him. And so I go through all this to say to you, okay, I know that word grace is familiar to you. And I know for most of us, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 are familiar to you. Our children memorizing verse 10. 
But do not, do not keep trying to put your little milk jug back together again. You can't do it. And because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, you don't have to. See, salvation is by grace. As the pastor Henry Ironside put it, and I shared this quote with you last week, but I want to share it again. By grace you have been saved. And grace precludes all thought of merit. We were not saved because we prayed so earnestly. We were not saved because we repented so bitterly. We were not saved because we turned over a new leaf. Or because we made restitution for past sins. Or tried to do good. Or kept the law. Or bathed the Sermon on the Mount. Or anything else that we could. But we were saved by grace. And grace is God's unmerited favor to those who merited the opposite. This salvation is by grace. The second heading is, it's through faith. So look again at that first sentence of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is another one of these words that we're familiar with, but we don't always mean the same thing whenever we use it. We don't always think about the same things whenever we read it in the Bible. So let me begin with what faith is not. Faith is not a subjective feeling. Okay, it's not that, that quiver in your liver. Faith is also not a blind leap of faith in the dark without any evidence. Saving faith is also not merely accepting something as true just because you want it to be true. And it's also not merely optimism, wishful thinking, positive thinking. Okay, so Richard, how are we to understand saving faith? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's actually a chapter in our Westminster Confession of Faith titled, Of Saving Faith. It's chapter 14. And in section 2 of chapter 14, we read, The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, eternal life. You want to know what saving faith is? It's accepting, receiving, resting upon Christ alone for your salvation by grace. Charles Spurgeon says, the chief part of faith lies in taking hold of Christ as being ours and in the resting on Christ for salvation. It will not save me to know Christ is a Savior, but it will save me to trust him to be my Savior. There's a difference. You know, do you know the difference? You know, who, who is Jesus to you? Is, is he... Is he a savior? Or is he the savior? But the real question is, is he your savior? Can you say, do you say, he is my savior? Look again at that first sentence in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And notice the prepositions. Paul says we're saved by grace, by God's grace. And it's through faith. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the grace of Christ. Okay, but I've got to make this clear. It's not even faith in Jesus that saves us. It's not even faith in Jesus that saves us. It is Jesus who saves us through faith. 
Okay, and that, that's not, I'm not playing with words. That's important. It's not even faith in Jesus that saves us. It is Jesus who saves us through faith. And this matters because it's not the strength or the quality or the amount of our faith that saves us. It's faith's object. It's the Savior. It's who we have faith in. It's if, we're, if we are accepting, receiving, resting upon Jesus Christ in his finished work of salvation, his life, death, and resurrection, or not. Accepting, receiving, resting on Christ is what saves us. It's, it's, not, it's not the strength or the amount or the quality of our faith. It's having faith, even the weakest faith, in the true Savior and what he has done. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, even the weakest Christians still get the same strong Christ. That faith is the instrument by which grace is received. But faith is not a work. Faith is not our contribution. Faith is a gift. And that's what Paul makes clear next. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is through faith. The third heading is the gift of God. So look at all of verse 8 and verse 9 together now. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so the question that biblical scholars wrestle with, okay, is the word this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, what does this refer to? What is the this? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the question is, does this refer to faith? Or does this refer to salvation as a whole? Then there's the other question, well, does it make a difference? So put, it, put it another way, is Paul saying that faith is a gift? Or is Paul saying that salvation by grace through faith is a gift? Now, the, the, the disagreement among scholars is because of the Greek grammar. And the Greek grammar is not clear. The demonstrative pronoun this is neuter gender in the original Greek text, while grace and faith are both feminine gender. Okay, so think about this. What do you think this means? Is Paul saying that faith is a gift, or is he saying that salvation by grace through faith is a gift? Is saving faith a gift of God, or is salvation by grace through faith a gift of God? What do you think? I think I heard the answer. I would say the Bible's answer is yes. It's yes. That this gift of God refers to the whole of salvation by grace through faith, including our faith. You see, in Greek, events as a whole are treated as neuter singular, singular things with, with neuter articles, which supports the view that Paul is saying salvation by grace through faith as a whole is a gift of God, which means our salvation is a gift of God's grace. We don't contribute to it. We, we don't earn it. Now, I think that most of us know that. We would readily say that. But this also means even our saving faith is a gift of God's grace. Our faith is not an expression of our own achievement or of our own effort or of our own ability. See, put it this way, we must never think of salvation as a transaction between us and God in which God provides the grace and we provide the faith. 
That faith is the instrument by which we receive the grace of Christ, but saving faith is not our contribution. Think about this. We can never provide our own saving faith. What does Paul say about us loud and clear here in the book of Ephesians, here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? What does Paul say about us before God makes us alive together with Christ? He says we're dead. That we are spiritually dead, flatlined, lifeless in our transgressions and sins. And so could a dead person put faith in Christ? Could a dead person do anything? We were hopelessly dead in our trespasses and sins. And God had to regenerate us. God had to resurrect us. God had to make us alive together with Christ. And God had to give us the gift of saving faith before we would trust in Christ as our Savior. And so look again. Look again at our text at the second half of verse 8 through verse 9. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All of this, the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you think, Richard, you keep saying the same things. I know, because Paul keeps saying the same things over and over and over again. That your salvation is not your own doing. Not one tiny sliver of it is your own doing. It is the gift of God's grace from beginning to end. From first to last. Therefore, you, me, we, we have nothing to boast about. That your salvation is not your own doing. It's not your own achievement. Nor is your salvation a reward for any of your good works. It's not a reward for your pledge of future good works. Salvation is God's gift of grace. So listen to how John Stott summarizes this. Since, therefore, there is no room for human merit... There is no room for human boasting either. We shall not be able to strut around heaven like peacocks. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praises of God. That we're not saved by our works. We are saved by the completed, accomplished work of Christ on our behalf. Namely, his righteous life, his atoning death, and his victorious resurrection. That we're not saved by our good works, but we're going to see in verse 10 that we are saved for good works. And notice the preposition, for good works. Say, by grace, through faith. All of this is the gift of God. But lastly, we see we're saved for good works. And so look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, and so now you hear this, and maybe you think, okay, Richard, what are you talking about? Okay, are you, you're confusing me. You've been saying it's not by works. It's not by our works. We don't contribute anything, and now you're saying, you have to do, you have to do good works. So which is it? Our good works do not cause our salvation. Our good works do not earn our salvation. Our good works do not merit our salvation. However, after God saves us by his grace, we're given new hearts. We're raised together with Christ to walk in newness of life. And we're summoned by God and we're enabled by the Holy Spirit to walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand for us. Put another way, we don't do these good works to earn God's grace. 
Rather, it's the experience of God's grace and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit which produces these good works in our lives. And so look again at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That Greek word translated workmanship means that we, Christians, those who have been saved by grace through faith, it means you, you dear Christian, no matter what you think of yourself, this is what God's word says that God believes and God knows about you, that you are God's workmanship. You are God's work of art, his masterpiece. You are a trophy of his grace. You matter to him. You have worth to him. You are his new creation. The text says you've been created in Christ Jesus. You have been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. I mean, you may wonder, do I have a purpose for my life? If so, I don't know what it is. This text says, yes, you do. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Even you, dear Christian, which God prepared beforehand. He prepared beforehand our God who chose us in him before the creation of the world, for the foundation of the world, prepared these good works beforehand that we should walk in them. As John Calvin puts it, we are his work because we have been recreated. Recreated, not in Adam this time, but recreated in Christ Jesus. Not to every kind of life or any kind of life, but for good works. Two good works. Okay, well, well, what are these good works? Well, in many ways, it's going to take the rest of the book of Ephesians to tell us about them. So we don't have time to do that today. Uh, but, and we'll really see this come into clear focus in, in Ephesians 4 and following. But let me give you a brief answer. Let me give you a couple of categories to think about these good works. First, God has revealed his will for us, his will for our lives in his word. If we just start there, if we just start with what God has clearly revealed to us in his commands, in his law, specifically in the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, if we just start there, then, then we've got plenty of good works to keep us busy. Plenty of things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt we've got plenty of things that God prepared beforehand for us to do and that he calls us to do. You see, God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, not only provides a mirror for us to look into and see how we fall short, to see our sin and see our need for a Savior, but God's law is also a fence. It's also a fence or a hedge of protection for our lives, but God's law is also a path for his people to walk on. It's a path to direct, given to us in love for our good, to direct our steps in how we are to walk in obedience. Not to earn God's grace, but because we already have God's grace. Not to earn God's grace, but because we are recipients of God's grace. Not to earn it, but because we have been and we are being changed by God's grace. Second, God has given each of us, each of us gifts and abilities and opportunities for faithfulness. You may, not, you may think, I don't know what my gift is. I promise you, you have one. 
I promise you, you do have these God-given gifts, abilities, and opportunities. And so let us know. Let me know if you don't know what yours are. We will help you find them because we need you to be using them. That God has given all of us gifts, abilities, and opportunities for faithfulness, and we should be stewards of all that God has given us to honor Christ, to serve his church, to love our neighbors. So Pastor Richard Phillips adds, if we will take these categories seriously, obeying God's law, using our gifts, fulfilling the duties that Christians all share, our lives will be utterly transformed to the praise of God. That people will look at us, the watching world will look at us, and they will begin to notice, not that we're perfect, because we won't be, but they will begin to notice that we are God's workmanship. They will begin to notice there's something different. There's something different about us. And they'll, they'll want to know, you know, why are you this way? How, how are you able, how are you able to have joy in the face of that? How are you able to be so generous? How are you able to endure that? I mean, what is it that's keeping you going? Where does this hope that you have come from? John Stott tells the story of from the end of his time as a theological student at Cambridge, and the principal, a man named Reverend Paul Gibson, was retiring, and there was going to be this, this, uh, this painting of of uh, this portrait painted of, of Paul Gibson that was going to be unveiled at this special ceremony. And, uh, and John Stott was there, and he says that um, upon seeing the painting of himself that Reverend Gibson said, in the future he believed people looking at the picture would not ask, who is that man? But rather would ask, okay, who painted this portrait? Who painted this? And Stott tells this story to say, that's the point that Paul's making in Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, dear Christian, what does the world see when it looks at your life? Does your life cause anyone to ask, who painted the portrait? Who sculpted this trophy of God's grace? Now, I, I don't ask these questions, okay, to discourage you, okay? I mean, I want them to challenge you and me, but I don't, don't, don't let them discourage you. You're not allowed to be discouraged, okay? You are allowed to be challenged, not allowed to be discouraged. And see, this table before us, it reminds us there is hope for us. There's grace for us. See, because this table doesn't only, doesn't only remind us of what Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, but this table reminds us that there is hope for us now because it reminds us of what Christ is doing now, seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning and interceding for us. And this table reminds us that Christ is not finished with us. He's not done with us. And that one day he will welcome us to himself in the new heavens and the new earth at the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And so let, let me end with one more quote that I hope will be an encouragement to all of us. All of us. And this is from, from John Newton, uh, the former slave trader who became a pastor and hymn writer. He wrote Amazing Grace. He, he once wrote this. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am who I am. It's, it, it, it's all the grace of God from first to last. And I think, friends, that this is a pretty good summary of really what Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 10 is about. Amen.